Welcome back to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. Today's podcast will cover questions asked by the audience during Dr. Gregory Schultz and Dr. Mellon's recent presentation at the Symposium on Advanced Wound Care Virtual Conference. Their session, Biofilm Management, From Bench to Bedside, was presented on Tuesday, May 11th, and is now available on demand for all attendees and subscribers. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for that introduction. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Mark Malin. Dr. Malin is a surgeon and medical director of the M Health Wound Healing Institute at University of Minnesota and an adjunct associate professor in the University of Minnesota Surgical Department. He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota Medical School, completed his general surgery residency and vascular fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. His interests and educational niches include management of lymphedema in the wounded patient, the endothelial glycocalyx, adjunctive micronutrient application to wound care, biofilm management, and emerging technologies in the field of wound care. He participates in the educational activities of the surgical department, resident training program, and is also a consultant for Medline Industries. Please note that any opinions, findings, recommendations, and or conclusions expressed in this presentation are those of the consultant, not necessarily of Medline. The results and outcomes of any case study should not be interpreted as a guarantee or warranty of similar results. Dr. Mullen, thanks so much for being with us here today. Let's dive right in. The first set of questions are on nutrition's impact on wound healing. Your talk was a great reminder of the importance of nutrition, Dr. Malin. What do you estimate the compliance of your patients to be? Are you using some sort of a nursing support program uh, to help people change their diet, smoking, and supplements and other behaviors? It's a really good question, insightful question. We work as a co-pilot pilot model. So when I'm in the room, there's a CWOCN. So when a, a, nursing, a nurse who's advanced in wound care, who's with me, and I, I treat patients like they're 747. So we talk about checklists. We talk about making sure that we're not missing things as we're talking to patients. And part of the checklist is education. So the things that we cover in the consult we cover again at the second follow-up, third follow-up, and we try to cover that checklist at each and every patient touch. When it comes to compliance, compliance can be difficult because at the initial consultation, I think some patients feel a little bit overwhelmed. So we give them all a printed copy of everything we just talked about. So they get the nutrients that we talked about, they get the dressing changes, we give them a uh, a card, say, call us. So we do get calls back from patients and family asking for explanations. Um, and we just try to, you know, I have these touch points and take time and answer all the questions. But I would say compliance rate, if you look at from consult to visit one, I think we get about 60 to 70% of patients that are spot on doing it perfect. And then by the next visit, we get up to about 80%. We never get to 100%. And here's why. If you look at patients in the wound clinic, about five to 20% have some uh, disease process that makes it difficult for them to mentally process what we're talking about. So if there's severe depression, if there's schizophrenia, if there's some of these other elements, unless there's really significant social support, it's difficult to get them to participate in 100% compliance. 
Um, I, the other word I use for compliance is adherence. When it comes to smoking right out of the gate, we talk about smoking. So we say, can we help you get on Shantix nicotine patch? We talk about the impact of smoking, both from a vascular standpoint as well as from a cancer standpoint. I would say our smoking cessation rate is probably about 50%. I would love it to be 100. It's not. Um, smoking's a tough deal. And the addiction, the addiction uh, component of smoking is incredibly high. When it comes to the diets, we try to keep it relatively straightforward. I don't get deep into proteins. I hit micronutrients much harder than I hit um, the rest of it because most people are getting enough protein. So we talk generally about the Mediterranean style diets that have, are rich in polyphenols, rich in, micro, um, rich in flavonoids and a lot of fiber. And then they tend to be lower on the simple sugar side. And then when it comes to the adjuncts of micronutrients, which are oftentimes vitamins or supplements, we do, we, I, I tell everybody, this is gonna be like a recipe. So like you're cooking, we're gonna give you the exact uh, ingredient and we're gonna give you the exact dose. And this is where to get it from either your local pharmacy or from an online source, just look for high quality components. That's very helpful. Here's another question from California. Can the micronutrient supplements you give your patients help the pathogenic bacteria in wounds? I love this question. So I actually, this challenged me. I've heard people talk about this. So I actually got online last night. I went to PubMed, I went to Google Scholar, and I just started typing in a bunch of search words, trying to find out, is there any truth to this? And I came across about three or four different documents from 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, one is from the journal Nutrients. It's called the Review of Micronutrients in the Immune System, Working in Harmony to Reduce the Risk of Infection. Now, I've provided that to Medline to share with that. That's a January 2020 peer-reviewed uh, publication out of Oregon State. I found this one incredibly helpful looking at this. So. Everything I can find says that in states of inflammation, which are relatively hypoxic cellular levels, uh, the bacteria lives in this collective colony that really doesn't have access to the nutrients that the organ has because there's really not perfusion into biofilms where bacteria live. So they really can't tap into what I'm giving the patient. So if anything, all the data, and this paper just reinforces it from 2020, the more we hit on nutrition, micronutrients, the stronger the body's immune system becomes to fight the oxidative stresses, to decrease inflammation, to shift wound beds from chronic inflammation into proliferation and then remodeling so we can start to get closure on wounds. So modulating the immune response helps through production of nitric oxide. That only happens when the MTHFR cycle is working correctly to turn L-arginine into citrulline and nitric oxide. You need the correct components and the enzymes and the micronutrients to do this among other types of biochemical signaling. So I can find no evidence, but I am so glad this question was asked because it did challenge me to go back and really look through the literature one more time and make sure that I, that I couldn't find anything. So I couldn't find anything that says that we're feeding bacteria at the same time we're trying to maximize wound closure rates. But again, I, I thank you for the question. Thank you for your insight. Here's another question from Massachusetts. In your best clinical judgment, 
what doses would you recommend of B6, B12, and folate? So this is part of the MTHFR cycle. This is that methyl tetrahydrofolase reductase cycle that produces nitric oxide from L-arginine. In this circle, folate is, think of the circle as um, you know, a clock. It has to turn, all the gears like a watch have to work together, otherwise it doesn't function. So if you have MTHFR abnormalities where we can see people that are heterozygous, homozygous, and there's probably other what are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphism abnormalities. So when we look specifically, taking a, a simple multivitamin won't take care of this in most of our patients because they're so deficient in these categories. So we're using what would normally be considered for a healthy person, super physiologic, but I think we should look at it as appropriate, precision, precise dosing in a diseased patient that has significant inflammation. So in the B12 component, it's a thousand micrograms. In the folic acid, it's 400 to 800 micrograms. And then in the B6 component, it is 100 to 400 milligrams. So note the difference, folic acid micrograms, B12 micrograms, B6, and B6 is actually made up of six different components. That's where the six comes from. So that's 100 milligrams. Now there is B complexes that will have this. You gotta be careful going to B complex. It may not have enough. The vitamin uh, C dosing that we specifically use, I like the brand, and again, not sponsored, and ester C. Now the reason I like ester C is because it actually has both vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams plus a flavonoid called hesperidin diosmin. Micronized purified flavonoid fractions are incredibly important for helping immune health function, decreasing inflammatory markers like ICAM, BCAM, and then improving venous tone and lymphatic tone. So we typically do a thousand milligrams, so one pill of ester C twice a day. Again, these are water soluble, right? So the B vitamin, the C vitamin, if you super saturate too much, you're going to lose some of this in the urine, but better to be saturated than under. Now on the E, I actually don't recommend a lot of the E's. Make sure and get a really good quality E. And I think whatever is um, the standard for vitamin E is, is just fine. I apologize, I don't even have the dose in front of me. And then vitamin A. Now vitamin A is the one you gotta be careful of because vitamin A is a fat soluble. So it get, can get stored easier. And this is one that can cause toxicity. So the only time I use vitamin A is in patients that are on chronic prednisone because we know that tends to result in a vitamin A deficiency. I usually will contact the primary care physician, make sure they know I'm putting them on vitamin A. I only put patients on it for 10 days. And so I usually have that conversation with the primary care physician about dosing to make sure we're all uh, correct and so that we don't run into a toxicity issue. And I never use vitamin A for longer than 10 days typically. So really, really good question from Massachusetts. Thank you. Let's talk about some of your dressing techniques. An audience member from your home state of Minnesota asked, what type of dressing do you apply to cover Pluragel? So Pluragel is a concentrated surfactant uh, gel that has an active component called P188, paloxomer 188. Um, what we, what I typically do is I'll use that on top of a foam. My favorite foam is a slow release, a slow controlled release iodine foam. And the reason I like that back is, is it, um, that the iodine component is great in terms of helping decrease inflammation, 
helping with pathological bacteria in the wound. And then it helps to retain the, the, the pleurogel component on the wound. And it provides a nice barrier. Now, the slow release iodinated foam will start to turn white as it releases the iodine. So that's, that's typically our choice. We've also used it with uh, blue foam. We've used it with pink foam. Um, so we, but the iodinated, the slow iodine release is the most common that we will use. Fantastic. Here's another question from the state of California. Do you scrub with pleurogel on gauze and then place an additional pleurogel and gauze over the wound and margin to dress it? It would be helpful if you could share what your application technique is with pleurogel. Usually when we're looking at rubbing something on the wound, it's typically we first put 4% lidocaine on to give a little bit of numbness to the wound. It sits on there for 10 or 15 minutes. And then we'll use typically hypochlorous acid on the wound if I'm going to do any gauze debridement, say after I use a pen blade or a curette. So I typically don't use pleurogel to wipe on the wound. And then once, again, hypochlorous acid, I'm trying to drive down that wound pH and then that's when I put on the pleurogel um, on top of the wound. And then I usually will, will put a thin layer like dime thickness in that one to two centimeters out, but we've seen good clinical outcomes, especially in cases like calciphylaxis, uh, venous hypertensive ulcerations, uh, arterial base by, by doing that outer rim. And it does not macerate uh, it, it's interesting. If anything, I think it helps prevent maceration with peri wound mar margin because of its uh, reverse thermodynamic component. So when you cool pleurogel, it actually gets uh, thinner, and when you warm it, it gets thicker. So I think that's why we see some of this barrier component to help with peri wound maceration, in addition to just uh, helping it with overall dermal health. Thank you for sharing your technique. A clinician from Texas asks, have you seen similar results of pleurogel on biofilm if you are not doing daily dressing changes? Does it support two to three day dressing changes? Good question. And I think this might speak a little bit towards cost because as we all, as we all know, pleurogel is not a covered entity, but the value is so high. And we always start with a sample. Now, it depends, I think, on where you're at in bacterial and bio burden within the wound. The heavier the burden, I would advise change the dressing more frequently. So early on, after debridement in the office, I may say, you know what, change it actually twice a day for the first week. And then we may shift to once a day. And once we get good wound bed preparation, then in some instances, uh, we may end up doing the dressing change uh, every other day. I don't like to stretch much past that because I think we lose some of the inact or lose some of the activity of the P188. So I we try to do it uh, at uh, maximum spreading out to every two to two to three days. And sometimes home care frequency, participation, et cetera, will dictate some of that. So again, in summary, look at the wound, look at the bio burden. The heavier the buyer burden, try to take care of that in the office. And then I would do more frequent changes early. And I think you can spread out with wound bed of uh, maturation and preparation as we start to go from inflammation into that proliferation phase. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. 
Let's switch gears a little bit to talk about something you mentioned they don't teach students in medical school, lymphatics management. Here's a question from an audience member in Hawaii. What diagnostic criteria do you use to diagnose lymphedema? Really good question. So the first and most important thing on lymphedema is taking a good history. So was there previous trauma, operation of the major nodal basement? Was there groin surgery, axillary surgery? Has there been cancer previously? Anything that may have had a significant disruption in the nodal chain, you know, one or two levels above where you're looking at. I had a guy in the clinic actually today who had a severe cat scratch in the 1970s in his right groin, ended up with horrible cellulitis. His lymph nodes got big. They were concerned about a cancer. He had this big lymph node resection and he has spent since the late seventies with a significantly enlarged right leg. So that was, uh, you know, a cellulitis that resulted in a surgical procedure that now has resulted in lifelong lymphedema. Um, so that was all based on history before I touched the patient. So an accurate history is incredibly important. Has there been a previous deep venous thrombosis? Has there been um, any other interruption along that line? Then on the physical examination, the classic signs you're looking for are what's called a stemmer sign. At the base of the second toe, if you pinch the skin together, is it pliable or is it very stiff and fibrotic? So a positive stemmer sign means you can't pinch the skin together. You look at the top of the foot, does it look like, is, is the tissue all humped up? That's called a buffalo hump. Is there thickened and fibrosis? Stage three lymphedema is actually non-pitting edema because there's so much fibrosis versus in stage one and stage two where you can leave an indentation in the finger. And then very advanced stages, you start to see significant skin changes like papillomas. They look like these warty growths on this, the skin. You can certainly see ulcerations. Now, all those are from microvascular chronic ischemia. Starving the skin causes the skin to become disordered in how it functions and how it replicates. That's why you see these abnormalities develop. You might see lymphorrhea. So uh, the, the physical examination then correlates with the history that then helps lead you to the diagnosis. There are obviously studies you can do the least invasive, you could do a duplex ultrasound and a very good radiologist will tell you, you know, there's a lot of significant interstitial edema that can help clue you in that there's edema. Uh, and then lymph, uh, lymphocentigraphy, which is a nuclear med study, can certainly look at the uh, pathways and functionality of the, uh, the um, lymphatics. And then there's some studies that aren't available for uh, uh, prime, uh, live prime right now, like near-infrared fluorescence imaging, which uses indesigning green injection into the subdermal space. Hopefully we get some access to those. And then the most invasive is lymph, uh, lymph angiogram, which typically now is only done if uh, a plastic surgeon or a reconstructionist is looking at some type of reconstruction. MR lymph, angiogram, lymph angiography right now is not available in the United States. I believe you can get that in Canada, but the pictures are gorgeous. So I hope I hope that becomes a prime time for us in the United States at some point when it's deemed to be a safe uh, option. You mentioned edema in your answer just now. Is the fluid composition in edema different from the fluid found in chronic wounds? Depends on the cause. So if it's congestive heart failure that's relatively acute, 
Uh, it may differ compared to chronic lymphedema. And so that, that, that proteasome makeup of what that fluid looks like, there's usually proteins in there and there's fluid. And I'm just gonna keep this super simple. So let's just say there's proteaceous material and then there's the liquid component. The analogy I use is like oatmeal. So a bowl of oatmeal that's got a lot of fluid in it, that fluid's easy to move through techniques like manual lymphatic drainage, uh, wearing your compression socks, exercising, etc. If that fluid's all gone, now that oatmeal gets hard and gets really thick. Now that kind of prote uh, proteaceous deposits within the skin now leads to fibrosis because that's very inflammatory. And you can't mobilize that into the lymphatic system to get restorative regenerative components in terms of health. This is why diuretics should not be used in lymphedema because you're actually ultimately leading to a cause of fibrosis. So early on, there might be a good response where you see edema decrease, but you're actually ultimately worsening the fibrotic reaction inflammation by taking away that fluid that you can use to help move that protein back into the lymphatics to get it redistributed. So uh, unless you've got congestive heart failure, renal failure, liver failure, diuretics really are contraindicated. This is where the nutrient micronized, purified flavonoid fraction, so MPFS, have been used in Europe 40, 50 years, great data, 40, 50 studies, 10 randomized controlled studies. This is where uh, uh, a medication can be really beneficial in helps of both um, lymphedema from primary lymphedema as well as the lymphedema of hemophiliology. What tools do you use to manage this excess fluid? So we, we talk about, first of all, we get certified lymphedema therapists involved, so CLTs, because they have been extensively trained, uh, literally typically over 100 hours of training to help us uh, manage our lymphedema patients. And then it's, it's a lot of things that are relatively common. So exercising, because many of our patients have sarcopenia, so they have low muscle mass, the muscle component when it squeezes helps stimulate uh, lymphatic management. Simple things like skin stretching can help activate uh, lymphatics. Micro deformation. So we use something called fuzzy whale circumferential socks. The brand name is Edemaware. Um, and that stimulates dermal lymphatics to improve lymphangion function to pull that interstitial fluid out. Uh, but the overall encompassing, if you talk to a certified lymphedema therapist, it's called complete decongestive therapy or complete decongestive physiotherapy. So that's why the lymphedema therapists are, 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 are phenomenally trained in this. They've worked incredibly hard. They're an incredibly passionate group of people. And I would always try to get a certified lymphedema therapist involved with your patients so they get the best education, the best long-term outcomes. What do you think is the biggest misconception you see in the field for lymphedema management? The biggest misconception is actually the lack of recognition. If I think if you look at provider groups, physicians, because we get very little education on lymphedema within med school, we're still taught some of the wrong components, uh, including now the recognition of the endothelial glycocalyx, which has revised the classical Starling curve to now the revised, or from the classical to the revised. So 
because the glycocalyx is like vortex, like a permeability layer, once fluid comes out of the artery, it used to be taught that 80% of that fluid goes back into the vein to be recirculated. Because the glycocalyx is like Gore-Tex, once that fluid leaves the artery, almost nothing can go back into the vein. Therefore, 100% of that fluid has to be managed by the lymphatics. And so the biggest misconception right now is that diuretics take care of lymphedema. It's that only 10 to 20% of fluid uh, uh, goes into the lymphatics. And therefore, um, you know, we're missing opportunities to appropriately treat with standard of care in 2021. So getting a lymphedema therapist involved, doing complete decongestant physiotherapy, maximizing use of micronized purified flavonoid fractions. And then the other thing is there, there's a wonderful role for utilization of lymphedema pumps in chronic patients that otherwise have a difficult time um, managing the fluid. There's uh, excellent peer-reviewed published studies on use of advanced lymphedema pumps to maximize this fluid and to uh, decrease the overall all cost of care, to decrease rates of cellulitis because every episode of cellulitis further damages lymphatics, which then, then just is like a vicious cycle because it makes patients more susceptible to further episodes of lymphedema. And then uh, it really is an augmentation of all these techniques together. So there's an excellent role for lymphedema pump management in patients with chronic, uh, hard to deal with lymphedema. So I, I see those kind of the, as the big buckets of the biggest misconceptions. And if I had one uh, hope, wish, and prayer, it's that we as physicians start to get the proper education in medical school, and we are taught the importance of lymphatics. When we look at the body, it's always been talked about two components of the vascular system, the arteries and the veins, but really the lymphatics are that third leg of the th third leg of stool and balances everything out. It's where the immune system lives, it's where fluid is recirculated. It's uh, a, a, such a significant component to health maintenance. It's part of the initial reason why we get arterial plaques is dysfunctional lymphatics. So there's uh, just a plethora of, of now peer-reviewed public studies coming out on uh, pathology regarding uh, lymphatics and the importance of paying attention and starting to treat appropriately. How can the medical device industry help? What is the biggest impact it can make in venous and lymphatic treatment? Industry's role, when you look at, when I meet representatives that are in industry, they are some of the most passionate, well-trained people that I encounter. And they, they really are seeking to educate us, realizing that we have not gotten this foundational component within our medical educations, our nursing educations, Again, it's the physical therapists, occupational therapists that go on to become certified lymphedema therapists that are getting this biggest component of education. So I would say engage with the, the industry reps that are that just have this really great foundational knowledge of lymphedema. I have learned so much from representatives in talking to them about lymphatics. Their experiences have been very beneficial to uh, our practice as well as uh, improving patient outcomes. And so I think it's a willingness to just, you know, we, we physicians tend to be egotistical. We don't want to be humble. We don't want to admit that we don't know all of this. And I think sometimes it's intimidating to have 
a representative with you that knows more about a subject than you do. I think we just have to drop the ego and I think we have to be willing to participate in education and willing to get up to 2021 standards that uh, we just didn't get in medical school. And it, it definitely ends up improving patient outcomes, especially in the wound clinic where, gosh, if I look at lower extremity uh, wounds coming into our wound clinic, easily 80 plus percent of those people have lymphedema and it's almost always been overlooked. And so I, I talk about leading with love. So the love component is lymphedema of venous etiology. It could be lymphedema of diabetic etiology. You name it, almost everybody coming in with lower extremity wound in our clinic has lymphatic dysfunction, lymphedema. And if we get uh, that component taken care of in addition to other uh, components, that's the one by reducing interstitial edema that maximizes microvascular perfusion. That's where all oxygen nutrient delivery occurs is the microvasculature of the wounds. That's the way to turn around chronic wounds because all chronic wounds are critical ischemia. Thank you so much for this fantastic discussion, Dr. Nolan. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. I appreciate the privilege of being able to follow up. And again, thank you for taking the time to send these questions. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to educate. Thank you for that valuable discussion. And we'd love to talk more, but we are out of time. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in and be sure to check out woundcarelearningnetwork.com for more podcasts, articles, and videos on various topics in wound care. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, or where you normally listen to your podcasts. We hope you tune in to our next podcast and thank you for listening to Speaking of Wounds.